Welcome, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. You know, people understood that much of what they have been taught to believe or much of what they have heard is actually incorrect. And they started basing their beliefs and opinions on what truly happened and what people actually experienced and what their real motivations were, then maybe we'd have a common starting point for understanding how we got here to the present day. That's Cordell Reeves, a historic preservation program analyst with the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation. In his role, Cordell strives to do more than keep history alive. He works to breathe life into accurate and full historical narratives by developing educational programming and events that enable sites to tell complete and inclusive stories. Much of history has been rewritten in order to fit within someone else's preferred narrative, a narrative that made them comfortable, a narrative that's diminished and erased the significant contributions of enslaved and indigenous people. Marcus Garvey said, a people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And that is why Cordell tells us that our future is dependent upon understanding and sharing our past. Here's our conversation with Cordell Reeves. Cordell Reeves, thank you so much for joining World Footprints today. Thank you for having me. So I want to, before we get into our, our conversation, um, I want to get a, a brief understanding of the work that you do as a historic preservation program analyst with the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation. That's a very long title, <laughs> so hopefully your job description is a little bit shorter. I work with New York State Historic Sites that the agency owns and operates, and my primary goal is to help them improve their interpretation. So interpretation is that bridge between random facts and making those facts relevant to the public. Against the backdrop of the siege on the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and the influx of Confederate sympathizers at Civil War sites like Gettysburg, we asked Cordell to talk about the importance of sharing a full and accurate account of history. Especially when it comes to the Civil War, there's a lot of mythology around the Civil War. There's a lot of folklore around the Civil War. There's this, you know, myth-making about the Southern cause. And a lot of the individuals that you, you know, describe, they want to see the war as not being you know, about slavery, even though all the articles of succession rank slavery as the main cause of them leaving the Union. Um, there's still this idea that, no, it's about states' rights it's, you know, it's not about slavery. Um, and, you know, many of the people who fought, which is true, did not own slaves. That doesn't mean they were not vested in the system of enforced state-sanctioned white supremacy that was in place. You know, so I, I think trying to get to the full story, trying to tell an accurate history is about erasing a lot of those myths. You know, if people understood that much of what they have been taught to believe or much of what they have heard is actually incorrect. And they started basing their beliefs and opinions on what truly happened and what people actually experienced and what their real motivations were, then maybe we'd have a common starting point for understanding how we got here 
to the present day. Cordell, there's so much uh, wrapped up in what you just said, and I'd like to, as best as we can, kind of uh, 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 peel some of some of the layers away. So, when people feel left out of a narrative as it relates to a place or a historical attraction, is there anything that can be done to make it more relevant and perhaps more universal in its appeal? And is, and is that something that's worth shooting for? Well, I think the first thing is that we need to stop thinking of all these stories as being separate. You know, they're all interwoven. You know, they're all part of one common story. So if you go to a historic site, you know, the lowest hanging fruit in a research sense are stories about the family stories about the great hero, whether that be the great general, military figure, business magnet, what have you. And then as you get further away from that great hero, the documents become less and less. So a lot of times historic sites will say, well, we'd love to expand and tell more stories, but we don't know anything. We don't have any firsthand accounts about these individuals. And my thing back to them is, well, have you looked at the archaeology? You know, because we have been finding and many of other sites have been finding interesting things having to do with enslaved communities based in archaeology, not in documents, based on things that we're finding almost always in, in quarters where enslaved people lived, indications of connections to West Africa, connections to West African symbolism in those spaces. Have you also looked at places where um, common sites that have you, I'm sorry, that are common time period, common region, and what they're doing, what research they have? And are you talking to other communities? Are you talking to the Lenape Nation? If you know that there was a native presence there on that land, you know, people know their own history. So are you setting foot off of your site and actually using every available tool to make sure that people get more than one primary narrative when they come to visit your site. You know? And then what's next once you have those tools, once you kind of maybe sc uh, scour the grounds and um, dig up you know, artifacts, uh, what, what is the next process? I think that at that point, you have to do some real interpretive planning. You have to say, you know, what is the story here? And I think you also have to go to those communities, whether they are indigenous communities, whether they're, you know, African descendant communities, and form an advisory committee so you're not developing this story in a vacuum. You know, we've done that as a field for too long, where we have, you know, a very experienced curator decide what that relevant story is and how it should be told with absolutely no input from the people who we want to show up to listen to that story. And so getting that feedback via an advisory committee, via you know, bringing in community partners and forming partnerships is, is crucial. When it comes to a lot of these communities and peoples that have been left, left out of some of these hero narratives, how important is it for DMOs, destinations to invest in uh, things such as archaeological uh, recovery and perhaps oral storytelling, oral history, and other ways of interpretation, as you've touched on, 
to really speak to that fuller narrative? I think it's very important and I think it's very worthwhile because if you look at the industry pre-COVID, you know, the African-American heritage travel market was growing in leaps and bounds every year pre-COVID, right? And I think that's going to come back eventually once people can know they can travel safely. So I think making that investment, um, firstly, destinations have an obligation. It's just an ethical obligation to tell the fullest story they possibly can. You know, it's not um, the easiest story. It's not the most accessible story. It's the fullest story they possibly can. So if you are leaving things out because maybe these are uncomfortable topics or maybe these are things that you don't feel equipped to deal with, I think there are resources out there to help you work with the visitors around this topic. The Smithsonian has been great um, since Lonnie Bunch has been running the Smithsonian about putting out resources about the history of systemic racism, toolkits to help you interpret different types of complicated, difficult history. So there are resources out there via Smithsonian, via International Coalition for the Sites of Conscience. Uh, there are resources out there to help sites with that work. You know, I have, I have told people, I said, this is not about avoiding discomfort. This is uncomfortable history. It is uncomfortable history for all of us. It is up to us to help visitors process and to help them manage their discomfort as they learn about these things and why they're so significant and how they've shaped our shared history. But it's not about eliminating that discomfort or avoiding it completely, because then we're doing a disservice to everyone, including the memory of the people who we're trying to honor. It's one of the reasons the governor um, of New York just announced a an initiative called you know, Our Whole History. Um, and part of that push is we're going to be repurposing one of our state historic sites as an African-American museum dedicated to the full range of African-American history in New York, from what? the 1600s all the way up to, you know, the Black Power movements and even present day um, with Black Lives Matter. So everything in between in that swath will be part of the stories that we're telling. And this will be at, in Yonkers at uh, Phillips Manor Hall. Okay. Um, and, you know, which was a, a good location because the Phillips family was, you know, deeply involved in the slave trade under the Dutch and under the British. Um, and the site itself does not have a lot of physical um, collections, a lot of the way most of the historic sites we have are in possession of with lots of decorative arts and furniture. This site doesn't have that. Um, it's mostly exhibits. So it was kind of a, not a blank slate, but an open space for us to tell um, many of these stories. Speaking of stories, we asked about one that has captured the attention of media. What has been told about the Schuyler family uh, that has captured the New York Times? Um, there's been controversy around recent research regarding um, Alexander Hamilton and whether or not he at any point um, held enslaved people. Mm -hmm. um, he's been portrayed as an abolitionist, as someone who was, you know, fervently anti-slavery um, and is believed to be so by most people 
but the staff at Skyler Mansion has been doing some research over the last couple of years, which has brought that into question and has you know, made the assertion that, well, it's possible that he very well may have owned um, enslaved people. And, you know, this is, I think, deeply, some people have taken offense who are great fans of Hamilton, um, but it's not about disparaging anyone. It's about seeking out the truth wherever that leads us. So if it's leading us to an understanding that maybe, you know, we need to explore further, maybe we need to dig deeper and you know, reanalyze his mm-hmm. role, um, then we need to do that because history is complicated and people are complicated and they have contradictions the same way people in present day have contradictions. Yes. So you have you know, Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, a founding father, are both members of a manumission society to end slavery. John Jay, as governor of New York, initiates gradual manumission. He writes the legislation, right? Um, He approves it, but he's also a slaveholder. There's this contradiction here that, you know, we see one label and we say, oh, well, that's what that person is. And it may be more complicated than that. There were a number of people who, you know, weren't were looking to end slavery as a system while they still held people in bondage themselves and saw it as a you know necessary evil for running their estate or saw it as we'll keep them in bondage for a certain period of time then we'll free them um, under conditions sometimes under conditions that they return and still do work at the same estate even though they've supposedly been freed so history and people are complicated and I think we can't be so wedded to one interpretation of someone's character or their life that we ignore evidence to the contrary. This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Discover the world when you visit our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content. Here's more of our conversation with Cordell Rees from the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation. Now, with your work in New York, what have been some of the initiatives that uh, the state's undertaken to tell uh, fuller stories, to tell uh, narratives that address some of the issues that we've talked about, dealing with enslaved people, dealing with the reality of slavery in a state like New York, which would probably surprise people thinking that I couldn't imagine that slavery existed in New York State. Well, there's, you know, the governor's whole history, you know, our whole history initiative, which I just, um, which was just announced during his um, state of the state. Um, And that's not just, you know, about the African-American museum, but also about expanding our interpretation of native peoples, you know, getting to these indigenous communities, all of our state parks, all of our state historic sites sit on grounds that were once occupied by, you know, the First Nations here um, in the Americas. And we need to acknowledge that. 
And we need to do a better job of reaching out to those nations to say, you know, what are your stories? How do we share with the public that your nation is still here? It's still a vibrant existing culture. You know, so often it's looked at as, you know, a dead culture, and that's not true. Um, we have, for the past few years, been working on expanding our interpretation of enslavement at state historic sites. So looking at um, Senate's House State Historic Site in Kingston and the exhibit there, um, major, major installation there on the enslaved people um, via a touchscreen um, display, which gives hundreds of pages of information about the enslaved community, um, everything from economics to culture, and trying to give people an idea of, yes, we're talking about the commodification of human beings, but we are going to concentrate on the human being story. Mm -hmm. We all know the commodification story, um, at least in part. You know, Kingston is important because during the Dutch Empire, Kingston becomes a breadbasket for other colonies that the Dutch hold. So the Dutch are utilizing colonies in South America and in the Caribbean purely to grow cash crops. In Kingston, wheat goes, grows really well and it grows really quickly. So they're shipping that wheat to other parts of the empire to feed enslaved people and Dutch people so that they can use all the ground just on growing cash crops for profit. Um, and we don't think about how this is a global system. You know, this is a global system all over the world. And New York is part of that global system. And it's the wealth that's generated by that global system that helps build the empire state. Um, and that's the part that's missing, you know, and again, getting back to the true story, people tend to think of, well, this great house and this great manor is here because of General so-and-so, and that's who we should focus on. He didn't build it. He didn't generate the wealth that came, that allowed it to be run, that allowed it to be profitable, that allowed those thousands of acres to be managed. That did not happen alone because of one person. That happened because of a system of enslavement, and it happened because of a workforce of forced labor you know, and all the wealth that comes along with that. Um, so we need to reinsert that into the story. You know, we need to reinsert that into the understanding. And even at Schuyler Mansion, they developed a new tour that is just about the history of enslaved people there, you know, who tried to seek their freedom by running away. Um, who stayed? What were the roles? What was the you know, what were the cultural holidays? Even like Pinkster, which was a Dutch um, observance of Pentecost, um, where enslaved people were giving free time to themselves during that observance, and they eventually evolved into their own holiday, where they infused it with their own traditions, West African music food. It became this multi-day holiday for themselves, um, which was celebrated long after the transfer of power from the Dutch to the British and even into the Americans in Albany up until 1811, when the Common Council outlawed it. Uh, I was actually going to ask, is that still celebrated in some fashion? We've been trying to bring it back. Um, 
we have, you know, prior to COVID, uh, we celebrated it twice um, at uh, Cralo State Historic Site, just across the river from Schuyler Mansion. We had plans to celebrate it at Schuyler Mansion, um, and then all these things happened and the world changed. Um, Phillips Manor, uh, Phillipsburg Manor um, in Tarrytown, New York, has been celebrating it for years. Um, they've had a Pinkster Festival for over a decade now. Um, but at one point, it was celebrated, you know, Long Island, New York City, Kingston, Albany, you know, um, it was a very popular festival for African people. I was curious, with so much American history taking place in New York and New York State and New York City, and much of this country's story can be told through what's happened there, I'm curious as to the impact that uh, learning about so many different aspects of this history in terms of retelling these stories, how is that impacting uh, the curriculum across uh, New York schools in terms of what they're teaching in, in, in history now? You know, I think teachers have a very difficult task. You know, um, they have you know, exams that they have to, you know, that they have to teach to, unfortunately. Um, curriculum shifts, curriculum changes every few years, trying to be more inclusive, and you have a limited amount of classroom time. So, you know, we have tried to put resources when we can online. You know, the Friends of Schuyler Mansion, um, on their website, there's an entire curriculum developed for multiple grade levels um, around the Albany fire of 1793, where three enslaved people were implicated in setting the fire and eventually um, executed. Um, they were hung, um, the youngest of which was a girl who was 13 or 14 years old. Um, and we have a video you know, that we shot in the mansion that details the different points of view. So in one room, you see um, the women of the household, the white women of the household. In another room, you see the enslaved people of the household. Um, in the rear of the mansion, there are free men of color who are making deliveries and who are dropping things off, who are having a conversation. And then you see the landowning slave-holding white men in another parlor. Um, and we try to rotate people's point of view to show how each of these groups is looking at this case. And you know, the enslaved people who were hung received a temporary stay of execution. And the dialogue takes place at that point. And some people talk about, and these are taken from newspaper accounts, being disappointed having traveled to Albany to see the hanging with their children and to then find out that they've received a stay of execution and wouldn't be hung. You know, which gives you an insight to the mindset of these individuals that this is almost entertainment, that you would bring, you know, your young children to see, you know, another child and two adults executed. Um, but it's um, an interesting program. There's a curriculum there, there are primary documents there. We try to put that together um, just to give teachers an easier uh, entry point to 
you know, pulling different pieces of that apart and sharing it with their students. Um, I think it's a very hard task with new research coming out, you know, every few months. It is very hard to stay on top of it. And one of the things that we would like to do a better job of is making it easier for teachers making it easier for them to access this history. Um, even if we can't get into every detail, making sure that they know some of the basics. You know, um, New York at one point is only second to South Carolina in the amount of enslaved people you know, held within the state. New York is a major slaveholding state. We're not on the fringes of this. You know, up until 1827 and even in some cases into the early 1830s, massive amounts of people are being held in bondage here, you know, which is why you have the population that we have, um, because many of those people choose to stay in New York. They set up settlements, they set up congregations, and it's one of the reasons why New York becomes this major underground railroad state is because you have all these places of sanctuary where you can blend in, all these communities where you can blend in and receive help. You know, So this is a legacy that's all connected, and we want teachers to be able to access the basics of it. We asked about those destinations and attractions around the country that are embracing the expansion of the narratives they tell. I think there are a number of places that are, you know, sort of challenging what's been for a long time, you know, um, and they've been doing research for years prior to the events of the previous summer, um, where a lot of museums sort of saw it as a catalyst to, we have to do something, we have to take some type of stand on you know, telling the true history. Um, Monticello has been doing you know, research for a long time um, and expanding that narrative. You know, I would say Mount Vernon also um, has been really challenging views of George Washington and talking more about the enslaved community there um, and the you know the massive amount of enslaved people challenging the whole good slaveholder narrative um, that's been so prevalent um, in past decades. Um, the McLeod Plantation in South Carolina, um, I think, is doing you know a really good job in challenging people and especially at a plantation site. You know, people show up to a plantation site and there's this romanticized notion of what the history is. And I read a review that was on TripAdvisor about the McLeod Plantation that I sent to their chief educator. And I said, you know, um, I, said, I, I, I said, I bet this happened recently. And the review basically said, you know, I just want to see pretty stuff. I'm on vacation. I don't want to have to learn about slavery. Okay, so you're, you've gone to a plantation in the South and you don't want to hear anything about slavery. But that's been the case at some plantations. I've been to plantation sites where they barely mention slavery at all. Um, because it mars the view of, you know, the, you know, founding family of the site. Um, and I think we're moving away from that. Places are being more challenged mm -hmm. to really say, okay, we can't ignore this. 
Um, so they're starting to open that door. Um, some people are doing a good job. Some people are still learning. You know, it's like a slow learning curve for some um, about how they speak about enslaved communities. Um, when we speak about enslaved communities, we often fall short. Um, but our goal is to always make sure that we are including agency. And when I say agency, the decision-making, the small and large decision-making that an enslaved person makes to try to exercise some sense of possession over their own selves and their lives. The choices that they are making on a daily basis on how to manage their lives in this insane system of enslavement and not lose their sense of self. Mm. We try to hit humanity. You know, what are the aspects of culture beyond pure labor that we can talk about? You know, what's this person's spiritual life like? What are their relationships like? What are the times of year that are most important to them where they can reconnect with people? You know, um, do we try to make sure that we are dealing with both of those? And that's the complexity of life as an enslaved person, the constant management of trying to just live, you know, trying to, you know, those who are working towards their freedom, who are trying to slave money, who maybe wish to purchase their freedom. Um, that's not always possible. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you are trapped, if you can't run because people say, oh, you know, well, I would I would just flee. I would I would run. I was like, if you're in New York and you're living in New York, it's just after the, you know, American Revolution. Where are you running to? You know, most of upstate New York is frontier at that point. So unless you are, you know, feel confident that you can be taken in by an indigenous nation um, that you may or may not be able to communicate with, or unless you have some skill and can maybe talk your way onto a ship or a port and trust that, you know, that person is not going to resell you elsewhere or turn you in for a reward, where, where are you going exactly? You know, how are you going to get there? Um, I, I think people have a very a very huge misunderstanding of the enormity of the challenges that someone faced trying to escape slavery during the colonial period. And people did try and people did actually get away. You know, there are people who did it, but massive, massive undertaking, you yeah. know, definitely not something easy. This was a very powerful conversation we had with Cordell Reeves, and I think it just echoes and amplifies a saying that a Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said. He said, basically, those who control the past control the future. And I think we need to really work to secure our future by pushing for the full narratives of our past to be shared. That past often portends where we will go in the future. So even when we go back and go into some of these areas that are very uncomfortable, uncovering those truths really help us 
gain clarity and gain a pathway to the future. So this work that Cordell and others are doing to really set the record straight with a lot of these historical narratives that have been blown up, falsified, just given a a different point of view because of the victors, it's really important that uh, we see the truth ultimately come through. Right, you know, because as Winston Churchill even said, History was going to be kind to him because he was going to write it. And so we have to keep that in mind. And certainly as we go and you know travel to places uh, like plantations, you know, some people like Cordell said that woman who visited the McLeod Plantation in South Carolina only wanted to hear about the antebellum architecture and see the hoop skirts. You know, there are people, there are stories behind the people who built these pretty things that people want to see. And I think it's important to share their contributions as well. In closing, we'd like to leave you with these words from George Orwell. The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're honored that you spent this time with us. Thank you for allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.